Hello and welcome to the Oplane podcast. Like every week, we are going to explore an area of expertise within the aviation industry in the company of an expert professional. But before we get into this matter, the usual reminder that you can find these and other preceding episodes of the Oplane podcast, as well as many other interesting stories and content about airlines and commercial aviation on our website, that's oplane.tv. I repeat it. This is a dot TV. So today we are traveling all the way to Johannesburg in South Africa, where our guest, Sandy Mutandagai, will give us an overview of the state of the commercial aviation industry in the African continent. We're going to have a look beyond the current COVID-19 pandemic. We'll take a long-term view on the future of air travel in Africa. What are the latest news about the continent's main players? the growth of Ethiopian airlines, the demise of South African airways, the launch of new airlines all over the continent. We also outline some of the obstacles to the establishment of a proper pan-African open airspace. And what are the trends currently shaping the airline sector in Africa? So get yourself comfortable and check today's episode out. So just paraphrasing a famous song, it's time for Africa. Hello, Tendi. How are you? Hey, Miguel. I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Experiencing the peak of the summer, which I think <laughs> over there where you're located in Johannesburg, South Africa, is actually the opposite. You are seeing off the weekend. Yeah, we're looking forward to spring. It's close by now. <laughs> okay. So basically, I was looking forward to have this conversation with you already for quite some time. First, let me... Yeah. Um, <laughs> introduce you. We've met working together on some business development consulting projects for an IFE company called EFI. Yeah. And basically, you have been working in African commercial aviation already for a number of years. So I thought it was a great uh, opportunity to have you here on the podcast to talk about African aviation, because it's a continent, it's a huge continent, that possibly doesn't get as much attention mm -hmm. from, from the media. So I thought it was a, a great to have you one day here mm -hmm. and we could review in depth all the different movements and activities that have been taking place in Africa recently and also have a bit of an overview about, you know, what, what sort of the airline landscape looks like at the moment and what are the, yeah. the trends that can be expected to go on. Yeah, sure. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you taking the time and thinking of me and having a conversation. So, and yeah, Africa is an interesting place. <laughs> indeed. Um, first of all, would you mind introducing yourself just briefly to the audience? So you've got experience with Terrapin, you've worked for Sabre as well. And, yeah. and as I said, you now also collaborate with Infly on the IFE projects. Yeah, so um, basically that's about that's a lot about my aviation experience. So I've been in the industry roughly about nine years now. Um, started with Terrapin, which is a training and events company, and uh, I was responsible for developing the Aviation Outlook, which became the Aviation Festival, and um, that sort of started my relationship with the industry. And I, after a few years, moved over to Sabre, where I was in the distribution team. So basically working with uh, the travel agents and the airlines to 
come to agreements on the usage of the system. And um, that was like a good learning experience. And I've so, since gone uh, out on my own as an independent consultant. As you mentioned, we work together on the in-flight entertainment wireless IFE uh, projects around the world. And um, obviously one of the big ones that we um, have in the, on the continent that I worked on is the Ethiopian Airlines uh, project, which is ongoing and um, is live, but yeah. And I'm um, also uh, working on other projects um, with the airline association here and there when someone needs some information or advice, I try and participate as much as I can. And um, yeah, that's me. And uh, I'm passionate about the commercial side of the industry, especially uh, distribution and how that works. And I'm trying to learn every day and contribute as much as I can. That's about me in a nutshell. Uh, you're the ideal person to um, basically talk about uh, all things aviation in Africa, because yeah. for a starter, not everyone in the audience is familiar about African aviation. Um, to have a bit of an overview of the main players in the region, uh, because it's it's a it's a continent, it's a huge continent, as mm -hmm. we said. You can divide it in in different sub regions. So, correct me if I'm wrong. You have a, a main region which is uh, North Africa, so okay. in the Mediterranean. That's uh, lots of connections with uh, with Europe. Then further down, you have the sure. Sahara Desert, uh, which is a very sparsely populated area. The other main economic area is actually on the other end of the continent, which is South Africa. And then you have South African Airways that is, well, it used so, to be the, yeah. the main yeah. player in African aviation, but now it's um, it, it stopped flying. So we, we will review this in more detail later, but um, yeah, yeah. at the moment it's, it's very uncertain what's going to happen, right, with the South African market. Then you have yeah. other emerging airlines. Uh, I would highlight Ethiopian Airlines, uh, which has emerged a bit as, a, as a, the strongest regional player at this, at this point in time. Then you have another, a few other national airlines that yeah. traditionally have been relatively strong players regionally, like Kenya Airways, Air Mauritius, for example, both in financial trouble at the moment. Yeah. You have other yeah. national airline projects being started in places like Senegal, Rwanda, with Rwandair. I think Uganda wanted to start a new national yeah. airline as well. Then you have... Uh, started, yeah. Yeah. Then you have, uh, in Angola, you have also a, an airline that has some long-haul international connections. And then maybe I'm forgetting some other airline here, but then you have, you've got uh, lots of other local and regional airlines, um, which has tend to be yeah. quite small normally, just a, a handful of aircraft yeah. you know, in, their, in their area, right? Um, so shall we maybe start by looking also at... Um, why there hasn't been really a, a very large, until now, a very large regional airline that, that has dominated African aviation. Maybe Ethiopian is, is the one that now is trying to play this role, right? Like yeah. other airlines, it's developing a hub in Addis Abeba that's connecting Europe and Africa and Asia and America. Um, yeah. Do you think that's um, really going to emerge as the, main, the top player in the continent? Um, I, well, I think Ethiopian Airlines is already the top player. Um, they are, I stand to be corrected, a global player by some margin. I believe they're now the fourth largest airline by destinations around the world. Um, so they have emerged to be the biggest player on the continent, and everybody obviously knows their story. Um, but to answer your question on why uh, the 
until now, I guess, why there hasn't been so much furore about airlines in, on the continent. Um, I think the first thing you'd want to understand about the African market is that even though we've got a billion plus people on the continent, um, the flying public or the people with the ability to fly is much smaller and the size of our industry is much smaller than the world. So to give you context, uh, Africa makes up about 2% or less of uh, the cargo and um, passenger market, commercial passenger market. So uh, there's not, uh, in terms of scale and size, there's not a huge number um, or a huge size of an industry. But within that, there's uh, room to grow. So, I mean, 16% of the world population is in Africa. You'd uh, hope and assume that um, percentage by population would be reflected in the, in, the, in the industry. So there's a gap for growth there. And um, the industry is developing fast, but obviously COVID has sort of slowed slow down that development. In general, it's a growing market. Um, as you mentioned, the top players uh, in your little intro there. Um, Ethiopian is the largest one by obviously passenger numbers and it's now obviously the gateway into the continent. It used to be through Dubai, but now it's through Addis Ababa, uh, which we are proud for, uh, to have as that. Um, another key player obviously um, would be the Egypt Airs, the Royal Emirates, the North African carriers, which have a huge number, especially for their point-to-point -point connectivity into Southern Europe. And uh, Kenya Airways, South African Airways all do very well. Um, and um, other, other players, like you mentioned, uh, Air Mauritius, South African Airways, all still um, are forces to be working with in the industry. And obviously, with the current challenges that they're going through, um, might come out the other side a bit smaller, but still robust enough to support an industry that's growing. So, so I think that's, yeah. So yeah, sorry. You, you mentioned 2%. 2% yeah. of the global aviation industry in yeah. uh, in terms of passengers? I think even number of aircraft flying, we rank very low. Uh -huh. But yeah, generally, in terms of the size of the industry, it's, it's a small industry compared to the rest of the world. And what about the low-cost industry? Because we have seen in other emerging economies in the world that yeah. they have been able to develop sizable low-cost industry, but it doesn't seem to be the case in, in Africa. I mean, you have in South Africa, you have a couple of low-cost airlines that I think they are doing okay, yeah. but not the case in other, in other large markets. Um, I'm thinking, for example, there's another large country with a, also a very large population like Nigeria, for example, that hasn't really produced yeah. a low-cost airline. And even, for example, Richard Branson, I think, launched a Virgin brand airline in Nigeria a few years ago, and it didn't really stick. So what happens that makes it difficult for even a low-cost airline to consolidate? Um, oh, well, I guess um, there's a few things I would uh, hesitate to, would be the reason. The one, the first thing is the size of the domestic market. As you mentioned, South Africa has some low-cost uh, carriers which are able to support the, dom the domestic market that's able to support those airlines. And in the rest of the continent, not uh, every market has the domestic market per se that can support that. And if we were to speak about uh, pan-African low-cost carriers, then you run into uh, some difficulties. So one thing would be, um, obviously, um, I'll start with price elasticity, right? That's the right word, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it was escaping me there. So um, it's been proven that um, intra-African travel is not as price sensitive as one would think. So that's been a bit of a difficult thing in the, in the sense of the product that uh, low-cost carriers 
offer while popular and the price point might be slightly better, um, the passengers haven't seemed, because they're so accustomed to flying in a certain way, i.e. having a meal on board, being entitled to two pieces of luggage as the traditional carriers like the South African Air and Ethiopian offer, the switch from uh, an unbundled service has been difficult for low-cost carriers to implement. So there's a little bit of price insensitivity there. Uh, low-cost carriers typically on the continent are probably encouraging first-time flyers to fly. The more sophisticated flyers are used to flying with uh, their preferred carriers. And the cultural change of telling someone, instead of taking a bus, you can fly, um, has is been difficult because obviously, like I mentioned, the luggage situation is hard to uh, bargain with. When you tell someone, no, you have to pay for the luggage, uh, on a bus you can take as much, almost as much luggage as you want, but on a plane you can't. Also, you know, on a full-service carrier, you, you have, you got, you're entitled to free luggage, and now you can't, you have to pay for it. That's another thing. Uh, the other issues are around the cost of flying to certain airports. So there are no secondary airports in the market on the continent that are big enough to support um, a low-cost travel. So in South Africa, there is one, Lisland, Syria, which is a bit of a secondary airport in Johannesburg, which can support uh, low-cost uh, travel. But in the rest of the continent, you're flying into the main airports where the airport authorities um, have higher fees. They Obviously, it's the taxes also uh, in the whole continent affect low-cost pricing models. So uh, all these factors are amongst the issues that uh, the low-cost model faces in the market. And and as always, uh, navigation fees is different uh, NSPs in the market. So that makes it a bit difficult for low-cost carriers to find the best deals because there's only usually one airport authority, one airport in the market that you can fly to. And the others, there's a lack of infrastructure in the secondary airports to support the type of aircrafts that would be used by a low-cost carrier. And passenger numbers as well to, to fill up a plane at a price point uh, that low-cost carriers usually typically would want. And their style ancillaries is a bit of a difficult thing to do. Um, in the intra-Africa space uh, at the moment. So those are some of the main points that would be affecting the model. Because there is no, at the moment, there is no uh, unified single skies in Africa, I guess. So... Yes, yeah, and that's something that uh, the industry is working towards uh, with something called SATAM, Single African Air Transport Market. That's what they're working towards, and that would hopefully enable the uh, low-cost airlines to thrive. Mm -hmm. But their pockets with working in South Africa especially is a good example of that. What sense? A domestic market supports it. Secondary airports, we have we have a secondary airport, which is Lanseria, which can support that. The customers' sophistication in terms of understanding unbundled fees and accepting them in, in the South African market enables airlines like Kulula and mm -hmm. Safi and Mango to survive and fly. There have been attempts to, to create mm -hmm. sort of a Pan-African low-cost airline. I remember even one of them had yeah. the EasyJet founder involved in some capacity, and, but it, they didn't really work out. Uh, they, there was, I think yeah. it was called uh, FastJet, right? And yeah. it ended up it, it ended up flying, but it was not nearly as large and international as it was expected. I think it ended up being a regional operation in Tanzania, I think, right? But there is an, yeah. another... Yeah. But there is another model, which I find quite interesting mm -hmm. because it's been literally unfolding the last few years. And that's actually driven by Ethiopian. Yeah. Uh, Ethiopian has been buying equity stakes, investing in airlines all over Africa, 
in places like Chad, I think they helped set up the, yes. the local airline in uh, Malawi, I think in Zambia. Yeah. In yeah. uh, West Africa, they have invested also in some airlines. They also have cooperation agreements, I think in Equatorial Guinea. Um, yeah. I think I'm forgetting some others, but basically they, they have invested in, in about half a dozen airlines all over Africa. Um, what's yeah. behind this strategy? They want to bypass this type of uh, red tape and regulations by investing locally and then feed their hub. Is this purely financial investments, betting on the overall uh, growth of Africa as, a, as an emerging economy? Uh, what, what do you think is, a, is the driver here? Um, sure. Let me, so let me start with taking a step back to speak about fast years. Um, Fast is still operational and they're sort of based in South Africa and Zimbabwe at the moment. The reason, in my opinion, why sort of their situation was a bit difficult was the genesis of the airline started in the UK. As you mentioned, the EasyJet founder, Stelios, was part of the founding of the airline. And I think first, first and foremost, uh, manage, at first they started by managing the airline from the UK and managing it, uh, managing an African operation a bit remotely, which was a bit difficult I would imagine, which was the first thing. And then obviously as they got to learn the market, they moved the operation locally. And uh, the issue they faced, there was uh, two main issues from my point of view was um, the states that they were in had national carriers or established national carriers. And um, they were sort of priced out of the market. I mean, I've heard rumors um, of uh, some airlines flying a wide body aircraft on a domestic route. Uh, and pricing the fast jet out of the market. So it made it difficult for them to compete per se. And um, obviously they do it at an economical cost, even if it's a low cost, they can't obviously run at a loss. They want to be profitable. So that was like one of the issues they had there. Um, and also they obviously had a, they used to fly, I think, A320s and um, sitting our 180-seater on some of the routes where you're trying to stimulate the market was a bit challenging and they ended up um, down gauging to Embraer's, um, which I think was a fitting, which is the current model now, if I Embraer's, which, uh, which is a fitting sort of mo uh, aircraft 70 seater market while you're stimulating a market makes sense. And also distribution was a challenge in the sense that low cost carriers are typically not found in the GDEs as, as they were. So distributing online uh, in a market where that is traditionally travel agency driven um, was also a challenge that they faced. And the lack of infrastructure in the secondary airports and the like was also some stuff that came up as part of uh, why their case or why they sort of had stunted growth. But um, if they can get out, I think in a few years, maybe now with all that's going on, there might be opportunities for them to grow again and we'll have to see. And uh, take it back to Ethiopian uh, in terms of their strategy, which is slightly different as you've already alluded to I think a lot of what, what they're trying to do is to feed uh, traffic into their long-haul intercontinental operations. I think that's the strategy, and um, they are buying into the airlines that they can or the regions that they can to, I think, contribute to the stimulation of growth on a continent and stimulating traffic, and also feeding uh, the, the hub, which is Addis Ababa. And um, there's a lot of, I think, soft power, in my opinion, in terms of the political a relationship that Ethiopia has with the rest of the continent. Um, the African Union sits in Addis Ababa. So uh, your EU equivalent, the headquarters are in Addis. There's a lot of political relationships between the countries. So having sort of air service between Addis and a lot of the re 
cities, the main cities, is, I would argue, politically important. And Ethiopia has taken the mantle and decided they're going to open up their, those routes. And I think that's part of it. And also, um, Satam hasn't worked, well, Yamasukro and the opening up of the African skies hasn't worked, um, essentially, uh, of ratification with local governments, right? And the African Union's uh, headquarters is in Addis Ababa. So obviously, um, the links between all the countries that are members of the African Union to the city makes it easier for the airline to establish its roots and grow its uh, footprint on the continent. I think it's a strategic move in that in Ethiopian sense, and they've taken up the role of obviously connecting Africa and investing in the continent. As, as you know, the gap between percentage of population and uh, the market is is, a, is an opportunity for any airline that can fulfill it. And uh, they've decided they want to do that. And the state, the government, and the airport companies and everything around ecosystem of Ethiopian supports their growth. Not that they fund them uh, or they bail them out in the sense, but they are politically aligned or strategically aligned with the airline in terms of creating Addis as a hub, which they've managed to do, and as well as connecting and training all the people that are all the resources that they need. So gathering all the resources that they need to grow. And one of them is obviously traffic into the hub. And they've managed to do that on the back of their African Union relationship. That's my take on Ethiopia. It's, it's been quite an amazing uh, growth that they've got. Um, actually, if yes, that's you, a few years ago you had asked me, I would possibly have thought of Kenya Airways as the, as the main airline in, in East yeah. Africa. But... Actually, yeah. Kenya Airways has been through some financial difficulties recently, I think, and it's being nationalized. Yes. Is that right? Um, to my knowledge, it was on the table, talks on the table, but nothing official that I've seen. But yeah, there's a, a lot of, I think, um, internal issues there, operational uh, staff versus management. Um, the competition is strong, obviously, Ethiopian has um, been doing its business and uh, Kenya's struggled a little bit with their feet um, and also market growth and uh, ownership situation has made it a bit difficult for them to focus on growing. What other interesting things are happening right now in African aviation? Because I, I have read about mm -hmm. several uh, national governments starting their own airlines uh, with long-haul long -haul projects. I think Senegal relaunched the airline. It used to have a national airline decades ago. Then I think it stopped flying and then they relaunched it uh, with flights yeah. to Europe, a new aircraft. Uh, I think they operate the A330neo. Uh, then we have uh, yeah. Rwanda, which is a, a small country, but it's been growing quite a lot economically. Yeah. The national airline has also launched some long-haul flights direct to Europe and to other other content. I think they have some flights to Asia as well. I think Uganda had also a project of uh, starting a national airline. Why all now all this um, emergence of, of new carriers? So everyone has realized that aviation is a, such a strategic sector. I mean, what, what, what's the driver here? Um, I think it's a bit of both. Um, aviation obviously opens up the economy. There's obviously proven, there's a lot of studies that show that where there's air service to a country, there's economic growth. There's a proportionate relationship there. And um, I, that's probably one of the reasons. And uh, success stories, as you mentioned, Rwanda as an, a good case study. And um, I think also the realization that if we align 
government strategies to growth with um, the market where the, the growth is, like you mentioned, Asia, China and Africa have a good relationship there. And providing air service to that would probably stimulate more growth for the, those economies. Um, to speak into why uh, governments are starting to get into um, the, uh, restarting some of those airlines that they had before or new airlines completely, I think it's um, the envy to an extent or seeing those case studies of Rwanda and Ethiopia and thinking the economic benefits are worth it. That's probably the driver to me in my, in my opinion, the, the main ones. Yeah. You mentioned a very interesting factor here in the equation, which is that in the last few years, the traditional investment and economic and even migration flows have, yeah. have been diversified a little bit. And you have a massive influx of um, Chinese investment in Africa. I'm thinking how this has been also a factor in the emergence of all these uh, airlines like Ethiopian that are, have a very strong Asian-oriented operation. Um, traditionally, many African airlines, they tended to, the ones that had a long-haul operation, they normally tended to connect with um, European countries with, with, uh, with which they had a yeah. historical relationship. Like you have the Angolan National Airline, for in example, Portugal. coming to Portugal. You had um, airlines from French-speaking air, um, parts of Africa to fly to to France or to Belgium, and now you have yes. airlines like Ethiopian Air Mauritius, for example, or Kenya Airways as well, that are having more and more flights to Asia and to China. I yes. guess that has been in part driven by by these changes. And what about the foreign airlines? Because I don't know if any Chinese airline is currently flying into Africa. Definitely the Gulf uh, yes. Airlines, Emirates and Etihad and, and uh, Qatar Airways and Fly Dubai and, and some other, they, they have scaled up their operations in Africa considerably. So they, they have become a, a big part of the traffic is actually connecting these flows between Africa and Asia. Yes. What about Asian airlines flying into Africa? Are there many currently um, making all the way to Africa? Not too many, my knowledge, to my knowledge, but um, you've got Cathay Pacific that has um, some routes, especially into Johannesburg, South Africa, um, and uh, Air China. Uh, I stand to be corrected if it's Air China, Chinese Airlines. But uh, one of the Chinese uh, carriers definitely flies into Johannesburg. And um, I, I think the African airlines that have more have more more traffic more routes or more more aircraft flying that way versus the asian airlines flying the, the other way and uh, that could possibly just be, be because of the demand from the local african traders and business people wanting to go there and the chinese airlines uh, demand of flows being fulfilled and satisfied by those african airlines and the gulf carriers which you can connect from china through dubai through europe uh, amsterdam and the like so um, they, there's definitely traffic there, but um, the the role of the foreign carriers on the continent is most of our traffic uh, on the continent is uh, international. So that's sort of the bread and butter of our, our continent in terms of traffic passenger numbers. And they come obviously traditionally through those colonial ties, uh, but obviously as economics are changing a little bit with the Asians getting uh, more into their dealings and business with Africa. There's, there's some sort of change in flows, but still the, m the majority of the traffic on the continent is still uh, facing Europe um, and the Middle East because of obviously the, 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 the traditional Hajj 
and religious travel to the Middle East. But uh, Paris is probably still the largest uh, city pair between Africa and uh, other city pairs on the continent. So Paris, let's say Cairo, Paris, Paris, Cote d'Ivoire. So still Europe dominates uh, the connections, but the Asian side is growing as well as Istanbul from Turkish point of view, which has a lot of them, which has, I, I believe, the most connect connections by an international carrier into the continent. True. Yeah. We. Yeah. I forgot to mention Turkish. Yes. Yeah. Flies to, to even to to some most cities. No yeah. one else flies to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. also looking west, we have seen also uh, an increase in the connections to the Americas and even to the United States. Yeah. I think there's a couple of routes that are among the longest in the world that connect yeah. South Africa to the east coast of the United States. There was also an interesting development. So it's basically the Icelandic group that controls Iceland there and some other aviation yeah. businesses. They invested in Cape Verde Airlines. It's Cape Verde is an archipelago yes. which is off the coast of West Africa. And mm -hmm. I don't know if they have done much yet with this investment, but uh, there was some kind of talk that they might try to do also a sort of um, intercontinental hub uh, similar to what Iceland does in the North Atlantic, but in the in the South Atlantic. So basically, because it's it's not yeah. halfway, but it's it's located in a part of the African coast. That it's closer to America that you could then yeah. do some connections there between Africa and and America. That was uh, I think the idea. Actually, there are already some flights going from Cape Verde to um, the east coast of the U.S. I think, but it's it's a small scale operation. Yes, yeah. That was quite interesting. From not not so much from a quantitative point of view, but from a yeah. point of view, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and yeah, so there there's been all these flights to interesting the, routes. Yeah. So do you see this is a trend that it might continue, and you might see more activity on this side of things. So you have on one side you have so traditionally it was more north south to Europe. So you have the Air Frances and, and Brussels Airlines and previously yes. Savena, and and now you have all the airlines looking to Asia. And but at the same time you also have uh, an expansion also towards the Americas. So yeah. let's say the intra-African connections are not yet. And that's established, but you have yeah. uh, a growing connectivity with uh, all the surrounding continents in all directions. Yes, yeah, indeed. And that's, uh, I think, attributable to, um, for example, if you take the American carriers flying into Cape Town direct now, the local governments in those areas obviously did, did some research and kind of noticed that the economic flows between uh, Cape Town and the U.S., is sizable and there's a market for tourists that are inbound um, throughout the year. Uh, it's sustainable. And they went out and did uh, the traditional route development uh, in partnership with all the key stakeholders in the South African tourism, the Cape Town government, uh, some of the airlines and the governments involved in that. So there's uh, been a realization that where there's economic activity, there can be air service. So if you use data and you look at the MIDTs and all of the other data out there, they've been using those kind of um, metrics to drive their route development. And I think it's an unrealized opportunity, like the Cape Town um, uh, United from New York to Cape Town flight would be made sense because I believe the market um, there was, I think there's about 20% unrealized market uh, in terms of the actual passengers from the US into South Africa that was untapped and obviously providing direct links between places creates more and stimulate that route and more people are interested in traveling in that. 
And um, regarding uh, internally is for Africa, um, the, obviously the main issues are around the visa situation between co countries on the continent. As you mentioned earlier, so, uh, most of the countries are aligned to the previous colonial history and those borders were drawn, drawn across those lines and the diplomatic relationships were previously along those lines. So, for example, as someone from Zimbabwe would need uh, a visa to travel to Cote d'Ivoire, for example. And um, that makes it a bit of an issue for someone who wants to travel between those two countries. I'm not saying that's factual, uh, but I mean, is an example of where issues come about, where you need to a visa to travel to that to that uh, region. And also there was never any air services during colonialism. And um, as um, Africa has become free and independent, um, there have been no establishment of air services between those continents, I mean, between those countries. Hence you find people having to fly between, let's say, DR Congo, uh, going to France to come back to a country that's uh, 2,000 kilometers away. And those are sort of the issues that we've, uh, that have been uh, impacting the growth of intra-Africa travel. But um, uh, AFRA and IATA are looking to sort of solve those problems with the single air transport market, which would allow airlines to open those routes that aren't open and add services to places where uh, there previously wasn't service. And um, we've got the Continental Free Trade Agreement, which uh, is also in play, but um, obviously slow to adopt. But um, the countries are looking to do that, where you open up economic ties between countries without too many tariffs and too much red tape, which would make it possible for countries to interact with each other easier. And uh, I trust that will help and open up that untapped opportunity of intra-Africa travel. When it comes to distribution, I'm just yes. thinking here, if there was a proper low-cost industry, low-cost airline industry yeah. growing throughout the continent, in terms of distribution, it might benefit from the fact that I think in some parts of Africa, I read that, um, for example, uh, mobile, mobile payments are, are very popular. Uh, for example, in Kenya, I think like the, a large percentage of the population uses mobile payments. There are some platforms that are, are working pretty well to do all sorts of things. So it could be an interesting test bank for all sorts of new ways to get people to, to use mobiles, to book their flights and ancillary services, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know right now what's yeah. the distribution landscape like in, in Africa. I mean, is still the, the indirect channel, does it have a much weight at the moment? I remember, for example, um, in some markets, there were issues with, for example, the amount of credit cards that are in the market made it necessary to develop other ways to get people to access services. So what, what's the situation yeah. like? Um, well, the situation regarding distribution on the continent is uh, still, I think it tracks most of the world in the sense that it's still driven by the indirect channel. In Africa, I think predominantly most airlines would probably say they distribute uh, between 5 and 15% of their tickets directly. And the rest is through indirect channels, which is a typical travel agency. Um, that's still the case. Um, then can I stop you one second? You said 5 yeah. to 15%. Yes, is direct. So on the website or the app. Okay, yeah, that's pretty low in terms of... Depend the yeah, it's very low, depending on the airline. And yeah, so I think it's not really a technology issue, as you mentioned, the mobile money payments. Most airlines have that capability to take payment that way. Um, I, my guess would be the distribution situation in the market is driven by culture um, in the sense that if I, people can transact and buy in the supermarkets using mobile money, why can't they just buy an air ticket? 
I think there's an element of I want to be able to speak to someone while I'm buying it. I want some counsel, especially if I'm traveling internationally. I want the guarantee that I have some recourse. I know where to go if something goes wrong. I can call somebody. I know who I'm talking to. Has been a, a major factor um, around how distribution is working on the continent. And also, um, the airlines are trying hard to change that and encourage more in, indirect, direct distribution. Uh, that sounds like an oxymoron, but th- through like supermarkets and um, vendors that sell financial services and the like um, to sort of distribute those uh, tickets and take people off or change the culture of needing to speak to a travel agency. Um, but regarding distribution, I think there's still driven by the travel agency. And also most of the travel currently is not leisure travel. And so there's a lot of corporate travel. There was a lot of corporate travel pre- before COVID that drove the markets and corporates um, prefer to work with a travel agency that can do help them with those things and the reporting and the recon required behind that. Technology to go direct exists in the market, like you mentioned, the more money. It's more, in my view, the, a cultural issue where people would want to interact and deal on such huge big ticket items like flights um, with a person that they can come back to get help and counsel. Um, the culture around, I want to give my money to someone, and if something goes wrong, someone can help me, still exists in the market. Uh, the DIY culture around travel still um, not yet as mature as one would like. And also that the fact that the most uh, markets on the continent are, are corporate driven. So business travel has been the key driver of air service on the continent. The mines around the continent, the tour, the conferences and the like are sort of the big ticket items for travel. As that changes, uh, maybe direct uh, distribution will become more viable. But currently it's not as viable because uh, the corporates would prefer to work with a travel agency for uh, reasons like because a lot of business travelers need to be, uh, duty of care becomes important when you have business travel. Um, sometimes it's security issues or fears when you travel to uh, unstable regions. A travel agency group could provide sort of those kind of services with their partners. And that becomes more comfortable than allowing your employees to use direct methods of booking travel. And um, the leisure part is being stimulated, as I mentioned there's an issue around visas for intra-Africa travel. So as visas fall away and as more tourism boards like the Cape Town um, uh, government and South African tourism are good examples of encouraging tourism into countries, um, increase the activity to educate other Africans about the existence of uh, the possibility of traveling to other places within the continent, um, the direct channel will grow. But for now, I think it's more culture and corporate focus. What's the situation with the South African low-cost airlines? Do they uh, have a significantly higher percentage of direct bookings or it's it's still following the same patterns that you were mentioning? Uh, I, I think it's South Africa is slightly a different market. and It's more advanced, comparable to a European market. Um, there is, um, we've got, most of the low-cost carriers have the highest market share in the domestic market. So um, the point-to-point between Johannesburg, Cape Town, and Durban is very mature, and the passengers are very sophisticated and able to manage their travel. So the direct bookings are much higher. Um, I've seen in with other airlines, which I can't mention, obviously, for confidential reasons, where they have 90% direct bookings versus indirect. 
but um, the attraction to indirect bookings is still there because a lot of the major, the larger corporates would probably prefer their passengers by via travel policy to use indirect bookings with travel agencies. And also the loyalty programs, uh, the benefits of that also keep indirect bookings um, alive. But um, generally, direct is very strong because of the low-cost carrier market and the sophistication in the infrastructure in South Africa, which is not the same for the rest of the continent. So now that aside we are, from the North African market. Yeah. Now that we are in South Africa, where you are based, yeah, yeah, yeah. what's going to happen with uh, South African Airways? What's the current situation? And do you think it's going to come back? And if it doesn't come back, what's going to happen to the South African market? Is there a gap? that some other players will cover. I, I read recently that there was even a new low-cost airline project being launched in the, in the short term. Yeah. Um, can you yeah. tell us a little bit how you see things? Um, yeah, sure. So the, uh, I'll start with the gap in the market, as you mentioned. Um, I think uh, whether South African Airways survives or not, there's um, more than enough um, players in the market to meet the demand that is in the market. So we've got about six airlines right now in South Africa that operate. So you've but got Kulula, you've got... They are all low-cost airlines, the ones that are currently... Um, mainly. So uh, we, we've got low-cost carriers. We've got full-service airlines like um, the regional airline called SA Airlink. Um, also a small uh, private airline called um, Same Air that um, can provide full-service uh, services, as well as British Airways, a franchise managed by Comair, still in the market which will still be in the market after post-COVID. So there's a mixture of uh, a service for everybody, but obviously this, the low-cost industry or model is successful because of the sophistication of the market. But um, the gap will be where the South African survives or not will be filled. And what's happening with the airline is, uh, it, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, we see the same things in the press, but obviously until something is official, we can't comment to say. But what I, what, what I can say is that um, the airlines look... In my opinion, it can be turned around, and if if it if they can find a, a a good model for it to exist, I think it would definitely be welcome, um, especially on the long haul routes. How I would see it, if I were a betting man or if I was advising South African Airways, would would be to follow the Swiss Air model of uh, returning to service, where um, it it fell under the Lufthansa Group after obviously the brand fell uh, after the airline went bankrupt. Um, back then. So that model might be the best way to follow, in my opinion, where you keep the brand, but the ownership and the way it's operated would be under someone else. Um, the only challenge with that is ownership rules in South Africa dictate that uh, foreign ownership is only limited to 25%. So unless a legislative change would happen or private South African airlines or parties would come over and take over, that that is the model I think would work. Simply, that is what the government is talking about. And South African uh, has the issue around financing and confidence around that. So um, lots of the financiers and lots of the money that has been used by South African is guaranteed by the government. But the South African government uh, is also lost a little bit of capital in terms of trust. So um, the financiers are less enthusiastic about funding another or a new model for South African. And uh, if they can get that right, then it can come back. But South Africans, are, uh, we, we will survive without it, but we'd like to see it survive because there's a lot of uh, employment attached to the, to the airline. 
because the, the COVID-19 uh, epidemic has been a bit like okay. the, the last drop for South yeah. African Airways, but yes. it had already issues before that. It had been on the brink yes. already for quite yes. some time, huh? we must say that. What about the pandemic? I guess all airlines yeah. got grounded. Are they flying again? The domestic airspace just got opened up for leisure travel uh, yesterday, but there's been business travel has been allowed for a while now. Um, but obviously the passenger traffic numbers have been compared to last year, the airlines that are flying have reported for aircraft. So uh, in general, the borders are closed, uh, but, but domestic uh, within South Africa is res- resumed. And most airlines, some airlines are announcing the reopening borders. Um, I highlight Nigeria and Ghana, which have announced that they will be opening borders next month um, to international traffic. But uh, the, the government's uh, speaking about the pandemic. What, what I've seen so far is uh, the state-owned airlines are going to hopefully be bailed out by the government uh, in a sense. And um, depending on in terms of how much the, uh, the government can spare to aviation, which is sometimes viewed as a luxury rather than a necessity, even though to, in my view it's necessary. So COVID situation, what I see evolving or happening would be some bankruptcies maybe, um, but uh, some of the airlines will likely survive because of government support. Um, outside of South Africa, that is, um, the private airlines in South Africa have, uh, had currently not been getting any assistance. So we'll see how the long term pans out for them. Um, they've been managing to get private investment, which has been helpful. But, um, my prediction of post COVID or what's happening with the COVID situation would be a survival of, uh, some, the major brands will survive. Um, the larger carriers will definitely survive, but, um, they'll be leaner and more efficient. So uh, they'll probably return to a few people, get rid of a few inefficiencies in their operations. The investment uh, in new aircraft will probably stop at all. There'll be second secondhand aircraft to use instead of buying new aircraft. Regional jet growth will continue. So that was a trend we were seeing in the market, but now it's definitely going to be forced to right-size your business in terms of yeah, the number of passengers your airline can reach, uh, realistically carry uh, on the route that you operate. So the network will dictate what happens uh, to uh, the market in terms of the size of the. So we've seen Embraer um, growing and the Dash, the Q400s also growing in the market in terms of popularity. So I think that's what we'll see. And um, hopefully this will speed up the single air transport market as the need for domestic growth. Like I mentioned earlier, um, the international traffic is what sort of drives the market in Africa. And if there's no international travel, maybe from a confidence situation or economic standpoint, the continent has to encourage and develop domestic and regional travels more than it has been. So what that's what I see with the COVID situation is a shift to domestic and regional focus, regional jets in terms of growth, uh, leaner airlines, and the major brands surviving. So I think uh, Ethiopian, we know, will survive. Um, Comair will survive in a certain format. Uh, Safe is doing very well. Uh, Kenya Airways will come back, but might be smaller. But uh, the smaller ones uh, with the uh, less uh, economically able governments might not survive. And that's sort of how I see it. Okay, so that I think that's a great roundup. We can leave it here today. Cool. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. I hope it was useful, and I hope I made sense. You'll let me know. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Today. Okay. And, uh, hopefully, speak with you yeah. soon. And cool. And continue. Let me know when you're going to publish it. Yeah. <laughs>
Okay. Cool. Very good. Thank, thank you so much. Right. Stay in touch. I appreciate bye. it. You too. Bye-bye.